After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. <coughs> Our second reading is Romans 4, verses 1 to 5. What then shall we say that Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, 
to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, and uh, thank you, Pippa, for reading those names particularly in uh, the end of chapter 15 of Genesis. Please do turn back there to Genesis 15 uh, with me, conveniently found on page 15 as well. Uh, But do keep a finger in Romans 4. We'll be back there later in this evening's talk. Uh, My name is Paul, uh, and I'm a member of the Emmanuel Church family. Let me uh, pray as we uh, begin this evening. Heavenly Father, our hearts uh, are heavy this evening, uh, our minds full of questions, but we ask now that in this time you will please speak to us by your spirit through your word. Comfort us with the truth of your glorious gospel. We pray we would see and understand more of your faithfulness to keep your promises to us. Please help us to rightly respond in faith for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, we are all hurting in some measure. Grief is painful. Death is an intruder in this world. And grief is the price that we pay for our love for Samuel and for Hannah and for Maggie, and for David. And there will be a mixture of emotions that are swirling around in our hearts and questions in our minds. Where is God in this situation? Where is God in our uncertainty, our fear, our grief, our pain, our suffering? And yet... In his kindness, friends, I really do believe that Genesis 15 has been given for us this evening. I do believe the Lord planned for us to hear this scripture, that it will be balm and comfort to our souls. And if you take nothing from the next 20 minutes, know this, God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. And in our best moments, we know and we believe that truth. God really has got us. Personally, I think back to our Emmanuel away day in the autumn, and Will Stileman came and spoke for us on Romans 5. He gave us five reasons to be joyful as Christians, and the Lord used that talk for me. Afterwards, we stood and we sang, He will hold, Christ will hold us fast. And I thought, yes, God really has got me. He's really got us. This is true. How could I ever doubt this? But then there are the kitchen floor moments. Those moments of today, of sadness, of grief, of pain. And we doubt. For some, it might be fears of 
exams for young people coming up of UCAS and what's next? A future that is uncertain. <coughs> Financial concerns, our job, uh, how we keep a roof over our head, food on the table. The chronic fear of loneliness, a life without friendship or relationship. Our health, perhaps we are worried by upcoming hospital appointments, uh, surgery, and I suspect that all of us at some point in our lives have had that lurking fear of death. We are so often afraid, we question what's going on in our world and in our lives. These are the highs, but also the lows of the Christian life. Ups and downs. That's normal. And they're reflected in the life of the central character of our series, the life of Abraham. Over the last few weeks, we've been following uh, this life of Abraham. We met him back in chapter 12, where God made promises to him. Promises of land, of offspring and blessing. And we've then had the highs, Abraham taking God at his word, at trusting him to leave his home in Ur and all of his possessions and travel to the land that God had promised him. Uh, and then in chapter 14, a chapter we've skipped over, uh, Abraham acts in faith to defeat four kings with just 318 men. But in between those two highs, there's a significant low. Uh, there is a famine in the land and God, uh, Abraham fails to trust God for his provision. Uh, he goes down to Egypt in search of food and then attempts to play the my beautiful wife is actually my sister trick, failing to act in trusting God for protection, for provision, and resulting in God's judgment on Pharaoh and his household. And now at the start of chapter 15, we come to Abram, a fearful man. That's at least what we can assume from verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abraham is not to fear. God is Abraham's shield, his possession. God himself is Abraham's very great reward. And we'll understand more of that, I think, as we understand the God at the heart of this passage, the God who is faithful to keep his promises. This is what the first readers of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, needed to hear as they stood on the plains of Moab and they looked to the promised land. No doubt they were fearful about the conquest that was coming. And yet God here tells us, do not be afraid, for I'm faithful to keep my promises. It's what we have to hear tonight. Rescued from slavery to sin uh, by Jesus on the cross, we stand as God's church and we look forward uh, to the day when we will be with him in eternity. But for the moment, there are real and present fears. Do not be afraid. God is faithful to keep his promises. We can have faith in God's promises. He is faithful to keep them. Which brings us to our first point uh, this evening, which is God's promises are received by faith. Verses one to six. Uh, so verse one, uh, God comes to the Lord, word of the Lord comes to Abraham and reassures him, do not be afraid. But Abraham, having been given the promises of chapter 12, questions the Lord. Verse two, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? 
And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Here, I don't think that Abraham is failing to keep God's promises and trust the promises of chapter 12. I think rather he's questioning the timing of their fulfillment. And God responds with a further word of promise for Abraham. Verse 4, it could not be clearer. The word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And the word of promise from God is then illustrated. Verse 5, God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I've been enjoying the cold, crisp weather this week. Not sure whether you have. And as many of you will know, my day job is as a secondary school geography teacher. And it's remarkable that amongst my colleagues, uh, the geography department become meteorological experts whenever there is a freak uh, bit of weather. And this week, a colleague specifically came to our department to ask, how long will this cold snap last? Waste of their time, if I'm honest, because I know the future no better than anybody else. And we've also been asked why it is so cold. Well, the answer to that is, well, many answers to that, but one of the answers is that the cloud acts as a blanket to keep in the heat at night. So remove the clouds and it will be colder. But the benefit of removing the clouds on these cold, crisp winter nights is that you can go out and you can look up at the night sky. And I did this one night this week, knowing this passage was coming up. And you stand there and stare out into space. And you know, don't you, that the more you look, the more stars you see. And that's what God tells Abraham to do. He says, come out of your tent, whatever he was living in, look up at the night sky and count the stars. So will your offspring be. And you can just imagine, can't you, Abraham? There, one, two, three, 4,568. It makes me wonder how long Abraham actually stood outside and counted before he got the idea. But he did get the idea. And we know that from verse six. Look down with me. Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham had faith. Abraham took God at his word. He believed God's promise. And because Abraham was willing to take God at his word, God credited it to him as righteousness. Righteousness simply means a right standing before God. It's not a subjective feeling, but an objective status. It's the language of a courtroom as a judge declares not guilty. But it's more than just that absence of wrongdoing. It's the presence of perfection. And notice this status is not earned by Abram. Instead, Abram has believed God's promise of verses 4 and 5, and God then credits it to him as righteousness. Righteousness was apart from him, separate from him, but now it has been given to him by God. God has justified Abram, we might say. God has made him righteous. And this vitally important verse sets the pattern for how we too are made righteous. Uh, it sets up the doctrine of justification in, that follows through the whole of scripture. And that verse 6 was picked up in our second reading this evening um, from the Apostle Paul writing in Romans chapter 4. Please do turn with me back to that second reading uh, just for a moment. Romans chapter 4, and it's on page 1131. 
1,131. And Paul here is explaining that nobody can boast because of keeping God's moral law, uh, not even Abraham. Uh, Rather, uh, Romans 4 and verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's verse 6 of uh, Genesis 15 being quoted by Paul. And Paul then unpacks that in verses 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Righteousness is not like a salary that we earn at work. Rather, verse 5, righteousness is credited, it is given as a gift to those who trust in the God who justifies. And if we just read back a few verses earlier, chapter 3 and verse 22, Paul has stated that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness is given by faith. It is a gift to those who believe. And this righteousness belongs to a person and one person alone. It's the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness as we are united to him through his death on the cross by faith. There, in his dazzling perfection, his right standing before God, uh, his perfection became ours as he bore our sin and unrighteousness and that swap that took place uh, on the cross. That exchange as at the cross, God's promise of forgiveness is made to us in him. God's promise of his Holy Spirit living with us now. God's promise of an eternity to spend in his perfect new world. And Abram's role, our role, is just as passive recipients of Jesus's righteousness. To acknowledge actually our unrighteousness and accept there's nothing to do about it and to have faith, wholly trusting in God's promises to us in Jesus. And notice God credits, gives this righteousness, not because of our faith, it's not about the value of our faith, the amount or the quality, but because of the object of our faith, his son. Now last week, Andrew Shepherd quoted for us the lyrics of some wonderful old hymns. And this week, I fear fear I'm about to lower the tone uh, by quoting Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston uh, in the musical The Prince of Egypt, based on the story of the Exodus, when they sang, When You Believe. There can be miracles when you believe. Well, perhaps we sometimes think of righteousness in the same way, that we only just have to believe a little bit more uh, and we can receive that righteousness. Perhaps we only think that Christ's righteousness is ours if our faith is big or good enough. But actually, that is a cruel perversion of the truth, which robs us of a wonderful assurance of our salvation. If you trust in Jesus tonight, you have his righteousness. Our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. If we have faith in him, however uncertain that faith may be, God credits his righteousness to us. 
And that truth was wonderfully discovered in the 16th century by the reformers, expressed in the five solas, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Earlier in the week, at the Equip Group with Edward, we read Luther's account of his own conversion. I'll just read a, a little bit of it to you. This was Martin Luther writing about an experience in 1519. I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then Luther's reflection on his experience. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. To paraphrase, this is the most wonderful news in the world. Luther understood God's promise of justification was to be received by faith. And in the words of Genesis 15:6, God credited it to Luther as righteousness. If you're not a Christian here this evening, trust God's promise of justification in Jesus. Have faith in him and his death for you on the cross. There is no other way to be righteous before him. If you are a Christian here this evening, the message of Genesis 15 is exactly the same. Have faith in God's promises. It's both the way in and the way on in the Christian life. Having faith in God's promises is not a one-off event, not something that we did the day we became a Christian, but it's an ongoing act of faith each day. Knowing God's character, trusting his promises, acting in light of their reality. What do you fear? Exams, the unknown future, job loss, financial insecurity, heartbreak, illness, death itself. Do not be afraid, Genesis 15.1. No matter the ups, no matter the downs, no matter how we feel, by faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, you have the status of being righteous before God. You are objectively declared righteous because of him. God is faithful to keep that promise and bring you through the trials of this life to eternity with him. Which brings us to the second part of our passage. If you want to turn back to Genesis 15, on page 15, and our second point, which is that God's promises are sealed by covenant, verses 7 to 21. In the second part of our reading, God reiterates now his promise of a land. Verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. And Abram questions again God's promise. Verse 8. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Again, this question I don't think should be confused with doubt. Abram instead wonders how God will fulfill this promise to him. After all, the land is full of all of those people uh, that filled the land in verses 19 to 21. Uh, I won't go to the trouble of reading them again. Back in verses 4 and 5, God then replied to Abram's questioning with that word of promise supported by his visual aid of the stars. 
But here God replies again with promise, and this time it's supported by the ancient world equivalent of a handshake on a business deal. God makes an agreement. He cuts a covenant with Abram. And glancing down at verses 9 to 21 on page 16, it's structured rather like a sandwich. Uh, There's the bread on either side of the filling. Uh, That's the transaction, the sort of legal bit, the agreement, shaking on the promise. And the bit in the middle then, verses 12 to 16, is God's word of promise, the content of the legal text, what God is actually promising. And so we'll start with those verses in the middle, uh, verses 12 to 16, God's word of promise. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And God then reveals to Abraham through a dream that he has the next 400 years of history. Verse 13, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. The first part of the dream foretells the story of God's rescue in the Exodus. The Exodus story then acts as a blueprint for salvation throughout scripture. And notice Like us, God does not promise that everything will be okay all of the time. There will be some significant lows for God's people, slavery, ill-treatment, as well as the highs, God being at work to rescue them out of that slavery. Abram personally won't live to see that rescue fulfilled, but he is promised, verse 15, a long life. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And Abraham's descendants will then return to the land God has promised them to live. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So that return of Abraham's offspring, notice again that promise being reiterated, only comes when the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. To return and take possession of the land will actually be an act of God's judgment against the Amorites for their sin. And that's what's happening in our Bible when uh, Joshua leads God's people to take possession of the promised land by crossing from the plains of Moab through the Jordan River and into Canaan. So that's the the content of God's promise. God promises that 400 years of future, that rescue, uh, the land to Abraham. And then in the verses either side, we get God cutting the covenant, the transaction. God makes this agreement with Abraham. And this sort of agreement was really quite common in the ancient world. Animals were gathered. You can see that verse 9. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So the animals were gathered and they were chopped up in half, and then they were arranged either side of a pathway, rather like the chairs are here, and we've got the aisle down the middle. And Both parties to the agreement, to the covenant, would walk up and down between the animals cut in half. And it said to each other, 
if you or I break this covenant, break this agreement, let us be like these animals that we're walking between. Let us be like these animals that are torn in half if we don't keep uh, the deal. But verse 17, something remarkable happens when it comes to actually walking in between these animals that Abraham has arranged in half. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Abram is still asleep from verse 12 when this deal is done. There could be no shadow of doubt that Abraham has nothing to do uh, with, or no part in, in agreeing to keep this covenant. God alone, verse 17, that smoking brazier with a blazing torch, passes between the torn animal carcasses. God alone is totally committed to keeping the promises that he has made in verses 13 to 16. So much so that he will keep this covenant even on Abram's behalf. God will give Abram offspring, land, blessing. He'll fulfill that exodus rescue. Or else, God is saying, he himself will be torn in half. Well, 4,000 years of salvation history lie between Genesis 15 and us in 2024. And we're more privileged than Abraham in many ways in having the benefit of historical hindsight. We know from reading on in our Bible in Exodus and Joshua's conquest of the land that verses 13 to 16 do come true. God fulfills the promises that he makes to Abraham here. God is faithful to his promises and we can trust them. And yet the story of the Exodus was only the trailer for the full film. God's promises to Abraham were fully and finally fulfilled as he sent his son to be our rescuer. God had not failed to keep this covenant, rather we had. And yet God was so committed to keeping his covenant that Jesus would be torn in two on the cross. Jesus was overcome by the thick and dreadful darkness of God's wrath poured out against our law-breaking. Like the animal carcasses, Jesus uh, was sacrificed to fulfill God's promises to us and to Abraham. God's promises to us are sealed by a new covenant in Jesus' blood. That's what we remembered this morning. We remember when we come and share the Lord's Supper here together. We feed on Christ's body and we drink of his blood by faith in our hearts as we remember that God is faithful to keep his promises to us. God does not promise ease and comfort in this life. The future for Abram's offspring in verses 13 to 16 is tough. Our lives can be tough. Decision-making, financial worries, sickness, grief. But God is faithful to keep his promises sealed to us in Jesus' blood. And as we finish, I'm going to read a quote from this excellent book, I would highly recommend it, called Echoes of Exodus. <coughs> it is, if, is as if in this passage... God is saying, not just in speech, but also in symbol. To Abraham, your family will be numerous. 
but they will face oppression. It will be long and painful, but you need to trust me. I am the God who brings out. As Abraham's seed, we still do need to trust him. As Abraham's God, our God is still the God who brings out. He's the God who rescues, the God who fulfills his promises to us. In the midst of fear, God is faithful to keep his promise. In the midst of our pain, God is faithful to keep his promise. In the midst of grief, God is faithful to keep his promise. Let's pray after a moment of quiet. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of scripture to us this evening. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit uh, is at work in speaking through your word. We pray that you would take and use what we've heard this evening. And you would uh, use it to comfort our hearts with the wonderful assurance of your righteousness in Christ. Thank you that that is ours through faith in him. And we pray that you would remind us uh, each day in this week ahead that you are faithful to keep your promises. No matter what trials and tribulations we continue to bear and, and face, we thank you that your promises are certain and are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Please keep us with our eyes fixed on him and the eternity to which you have called us. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>